The scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Have you enjoyed the music this morning? Have you been blessed by it? My goodness. And it would not be Christmas at Brookwood without the begat song, would it? Would not be. Well, speaking of begats, we all have a genealogy. You know that. You have a family tree in some parts of it we can be proud of. Linda Click one time sat down with her young daughter, and with great pride, she told her daughter for the first time that her grandfather was a preacher, that her great-great-grandfather was a preacher, and that her great-great-great-grandfather was a preacher. To which the young daughter said, wow, mom, we sure come from a long line of grandfathers. (laughs) Well, so do we. You know, they say that Matthew's account of Joseph's story begins with scandal. Uh, Mary is pregnant, Joseph is not the father, but really there's a scandal that precedes that story in Matthew. In fact, it begins in Matthew 1.1, and we're talking, yes, about the genealogy. Now, ancient Jews liked to keep their genealogies clean. They actually used them as, as documents for land acquisition and purchasing things, and it really was just a form of, of prideful identity. And so they like to keep it clean, and ordinarily, uh, ancient Jews with their genealogies would omit certain people, uh, particularly three types of people, women, foreigners, and persons of bad reputation. Matthew's genealogy contains all three. Did you know that? Four women, all foreigners, all of questionable repute. Let's go to verses 3, 5, and 6 of Matthew chapter 1. I'm just going to zero in on those. I'm not going to sing through all of them again, Andy, but I'm going to just zero in on these few verses. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was who? Tamar. Simon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now let's, let's break that down. Tamar was forced into prostitution to be a prostitute so she could have children by men, really by deceiving them because her husband had died. What about Rahab? She was apparently a prostitute of great beauty. And to her credit, she did help the Israelites gain access to the promised land in certain ways. And so there you go. But still a person of ill repute. Ruth, you hear good things about, but her ancestry was questionable at best. You traced her ancestry back to Lot of Sodom and Gomorrah fame. And so she was born under a curse because of her ancestry. And then Bathsheba, bless her heart, Matthew cannot even bring himself to place her name there. Rather, he puts Uriah's wife. And you know the terrible scandal there, David beckons her to the palace, and at best they engage in an adulterous affair. At worst, she is sexually harassed and and, and worse. And not just that, Uh, but David goes on and has Uriah, her husband, killed on the battlefield. Four women with scars on this family tree. Scandal. 
and in Matthew. <laughs> as members of Jesus' family, you know what? We're a part of that genealogy as well. And we come ourselves, as you well know, from a scandalous line, a scandalous lineage, a dysfunctional one, and there are really no exceptions to that. Even if there are parts of your family tree you're proud of, well, uh, true story, Vic Pence, uh, this was years ago, this was before Ancestry.com got going, and he got a packet in the mail that said, if you send us back 50 bucks, uh, we will give you the entire family tree of the Pence family. He thought, well, that's neat. Uh, Yeah, I'll do that. I'd love to find out all the distinguished people uh, whom I'm a part of, from whom I am descended. And so he sent $50. Two weeks later, he gets a notebook in the mail. He flips it open, and these were the first words he read, and he got very excited. It began on a promising note. The first members of the Pence family arrived on our American shores about the time of the American Revolutionary War. He thought, oh, man. I come from a lineage of patriots. And then he read on, to fight on the side of the British as Hessian mercenary soldiers. And it went on to say that after his side lost, that uh, the Pences uh, skedaddled up to Canada, to Nova Scotia, and it wasn't until things settled down in the states that they came back down and settled in Pennsylvania. And Vic Pence summarized this by saying, it was like I sent 50 bucks to find out my ancestry, and it cost me 100 to hush it up. Well, we all have a family tree that is scarred and scandalized by sin, and you and I are a part of that, and we're not excused from our own sins, our our questionable behavior, our immoralities. We're a part of that tree. And speaking of trees, I want to go back to the first tree ever known about in history. You go back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Let me read it first of all. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, you know how the rest of the story goes, but let me just ask you this. Why did God put the tree there in the first place? That has been a stumbling block for some of my agnostic and atheist friends with whom I like to argue about the faith. Why would God put that in there? Was it a test? Was it a trap? Why did God do that? Well, first of all, let's think about that. Why is it even called the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Well, if you know all things that are good and all things that are evil in existence itself, who are you? You're you're God. So keep that in mind. Now, God creates the world, and it's all, at the end of each day, he said, he looked at all that he created, and it was what? Help me. It was all good. Creates humanity and says it is very good. So, so the creation account uh, begins with goodness, all goodness, and, and, and all was good in the world, and, and Adam and Eve were in sync with each other. They were in harmony with each other, with their God, with creation. It was all good. But God wanted to protect that goodness. Think about this. Let's get philosophical for a moment. In order for there to be the possibility of good, there has to be the possibility of what? Evil. Uh, How else do you define goodness unless you have the possibility of anti-goodness, of evil? How do you measure the goodness of something unless you have the other end by which you measure it by contrast? That has to be there. 
And God decided, as our friend Greg Boyd, who came here and delivered a wonderful Holly Hall lecture, he did not want us to become lobotomized believers. And so we, rather than being automatons, God gave us the opportunity to choose. That's how loving he is. You know, he gives us the freedom even to choose or reject him. That is the ultimate and unconditional love. And so what's going on here? Well, well, you know, he's basically telling Adam and Eve, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you dominion over all things. Yeah, name the animals. Take all the food. I'm giving you, I'm giving you the world. One thing I ask, <laughs> remember who I am and who you are. That's all I ask. You know, I'm the creator of the very universe. You're flesh and bone, and I love you. Just don't try to take my place. That's all I ask. Just don't try to take my place. And is that not exactly what they tried to do? Uh, you know how the rest of the story goes. You go to Genesis chapter 3. Serpent comes along. He says, hey, can you not eat of that fruit? Well, Eve says, uh, yeah, we're not supposed to because we eat of it, we will surely die. And what does the serpent say? You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like whom? God knowing good and evil. That's why it was called the tree of knowledge and good and evil. So let's keep in mind, God did not put that in there just as some trap, as some test. No, it's really a safeguard there. That's the best word I have found by Dr. Bill and It's a safeguard to say, look, I'm giving you everything. Just remember, I'm giving you even the freedom of choice, but just don't mess it up. And here's a reminder. Here's a physical reminder of this. Well, you know the rest of the story. They plucked the fruit anyway and ate of it. And as I've always said, if they hadn't have done that, the Bible would be a real thin book, you know, and things would be so great. But it doesn't happen that way. Just as the musical Finian's Rainbow, some of you may have heard of, there's a line in a song that says, Eve gave the apple to Adam and that began the begets. And it did. And it begat a whole lot of dysfunction and depravity. And it got so bad, as you know, that the great flood came. And all the sin of humanity was wiped out. But I want you to notice something, and I think this is great. If you look in the literal Greek of Matthew 1, 1, I think I've got it up here. This is literally what it says in the Greek. Uh, The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ Son of David, son of Abraham. I know some translations you have might say uh, the book of the, the origin of Jesus Christ or the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Really, the word there in the Greek is genesios. Genesios, it's the word genesis. And I think Matthew is intentional about using that word. Why? Go back to Genesis 5. Very interesting, just before the world is wiped out because of its sin, because of its depravity, By the flood, you know what appears there? A genealogy. It's as if God is saying, I need to create a new humanity. (laughs) And that's what happens. And now he is preparing to create a new humanity because of sending his very own son at the time of Advent for you and me. And by doing that, creating the new humanity, which is you and me, God's very church which gives glory to him through Jesus Christ. It's really a genealogy of promise. I think the earlier one in Genesis was one of tragedy, but this is one of promise. And it points to Jesus who did what? Scandalized himself, scarred his reputation because he hung out with those sinners and shysters and harlots 
and mentally unstable people and gained the wrath of religious leaders because of it. He hung out with the cursed people, the people who would tarnish the family tree, the people who would disgrace the family. Those are who he hung out with. Which brings us to Joseph, wonderful earthly father of Jesus. Think about the drama right here when he finds out that Mary is pregnant. He knows that his family tree could be tarnished. And he could have done the easy thing. He could have done what was customary, which was to do what? Go report her pregnancy to the priest. And actually, after that, you know what you're supposed to do? You are supposed to go to the public square and declare it publicly that this is what Mary has been involved in. Joseph chooses not to do that. In fact, what does Deuteronomy 22 say? You have the very right to stone her. But he has none of that. Though he had to be, had to be heartbroken, what does he do? He decides to divorce her quietly. That's what it says here. Decides to end the engagement quietly. Now, think about that. If he divorces her quietly, she begins, let's just be honest, she begins to show. People begin to realize, hey, she's pregnant. They assume that Joseph is the perpetrator, right? And he is the one who takes on all the shame, all the humiliation, all the embarrassment, all the scorn. It goes his way. He gets the blame. He gets the shame. He gets the stigma. And yet as this marvelously righteous man, he says, I will take that on myself. Which I love, by the way, the orthodox icon of Joseph. You have a set square there that that, uh, carpenters use. And then you have the uh, pure white lilies there. Those are always the symbols that he is holding. Because again, it's about his, his masculinity as a carpenter, but also his purity as a man who decided to protect Mary. And out of love, he decided to take all that shame, all that dishonor, all that embarrassment upon himself. Who does that sound like? Even then, in a sense, he is modeling such grace to his son, whom he helped raise, Jesus himself. Jesus, who no doubt sees our sin. And because of that, you know, he deserves to call us out on that publicly. In fact, we deserve to be punished because of it. We deserve to die because of it. But no, out of his own mercy. Just like the earthly father who modeled mercy himself. He does the same for us, taking on the shame, taking on the dishonor. Yes, taking on our sin. He invites every one of us to do that, to be a part of his incredible family. So the question is, are you a part of that family? Let's pray together. I I, I want you to take a moment, and let's just just spend a, a moment in the discipline of meditation, and I want you to think about something you need to lift up to God. It might be that for the first time you have a sense of conviction about your own sin and that you are distant from God because you're not a Christ follower. And maybe you feel led to make that commitment through what we call a profession of faith today. We would love for you to make that profession of faith today. Uh, Come forward and make it public as, as we sing a song of invitation in just a moment. Or maybe you simply need to lift up some sin with which you are struggling now. Something maybe others don't even know about. Or maybe it has to do with 
um, anger or, or impatience or jealousy. Uh, it might be some hurtful thing that you said. It might be a, a, a compulsion that you just can't seem to shake. Whatever it might be, I'd love for you to take just a moment and lift that up to the one who, again, models mercy and grace more perfectly than anyone and who desires that you bring that to him because you are family to him and he is family to you. Will you do that for just a moment? Lord, this world was in such a bad way. Even wiping it out once seemed not to have redeemed it. And yet, at the right time, in the fullness of time, your son came as the incarnation, resting in a manger. We thank you for him. We thank you for the mercies that he brings to us each and every day. We ask that what we lifted up to you just a moment ago, that we would receive your grace. And remember once again that no matter how often we tarnish your name, stain your reputation, which we do way too often, and for which we deserve such punishment, nevertheless... You invite us back into your marvelous arms and love us all over with that unconditional love that only you can bring. Thank you for that being such a balm for our souls this day. And may it all the more help us to anticipate the wonder of your son coming to us at Bethlehem. We pray these things in your name. Amen.